This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Some things are hard to understand, aren't they? Some things just don't make sense. We're never going to figure them out. For example, uh, cell phones don't make sense. How this thing can talk to somebody on the other side of the planet. Like, and I say that having worked at Motorola for 17 years in the telecommunications industry, it don't make sense. Chemistry and English don't make sense, amen? Right? All these exceptions to all these rules. Uh, how to set the clock on your VCR doesn't make any sense. And mind you, we never did figure that out. We just moved on. That's all we did. What's that? We have a VCR still because it's the only way for us to watch our wedding tape, which is on a VHS. And you're like, why didn't you convert it to digital? I don't know. Yeah, we have a VCR. The Atari doesn't work anymore, though. We had to throw that away. You know something else that doesn't make sense besides still watching things on VCR and not converting them to digital in 2023 or whatever year it is? Like, the resurrection doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, if we're honest, we're like, it's okay to be like, oh, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Like, how do dead bodies come back to life? Anybody? Okay, so you're with me. It doesn't make sense. And that was the case for some in the church in Corinth. They, they were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. And part of the reason they were saying it is because it was beyond their ability to comprehend. Right? They couldn't imagine how such a thing would even happen. And so Paul, Paul wrote the church a letter. And he, he's trying to answer some of their questions and address some of their misunderstandings that we see here in chapter 15. And he began by reminding them of Christ's resurrection. Right? We saw that on Easter Sunday. And then he went on to tell them about the reality of their own resurrection that we looked at last week. And here in this morning's passage, we see Paul anticipate their next question. He, he, he knows what they're thinking. He's like, yeah, but, but how does this resurrection thing work? Because let's be honest, it doesn't make any sense. Right? Dead people don't just come back to life. And so he sets out here to help them and to help us in better understanding the resurrection, trying to make sense of it all. And he does this first by asking the question that he knows they're already thinking, then providing an illustration of something they already know, and then explaining how this resurrection thing works. And so if you haven't already, let's go ahead and let's take out our Bibles, open them up to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in, in chapter 15, verses 35 uh, to 49 this morning. And what we're going to see Paul do here in the beginning, here in verse 35, is he, he begins by anticipating the question that they're, that they're going to ask. And he asks it before they could even ask it. He's like, so right now, you might be thinking, how are the dead raised? And well, what kind of body do they come? What does our resurrected body look like? And it, like, they, they couldn't wrap their minds around this, of, of how such a thing was possible, especially, mind you, for someone who, who had been dead for some time. Right? Their body having since decayed and broken down and, and having returned to dust, just as God said would take place in Genesis 3.19. And because they couldn't fathom how the resurrection would take place, they couldn't imagine what the resurrected body would look like. It, it didn't make any sense to them. Right? They, didn't, they didn't understand the resurrection. They couldn't explain it. And as a result, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that it was true. 
right? They denied what they didn't understand. And to be honest, I get it. The resurrection doesn't make sense. It's hard to believe in something you don't understand and something you can't explain. I mean, like, resurrection, this is the stuff of science fiction movies, isn't it? Right? This is like Frankenstein's monster coming together. Is this like zombie movie stuff? What are we talking about here with the, with the resurrection of the dead? I mean, the closest thing that humanity has done in bringing something dead back to life, I think, is cloning. Um, where you just, uh, magically, you take one drop from a, a long-since-dead mosquito trapped in a bar of amber, and poof, welcome to Jurassic Park. It's that easy. But here's the thing. We're not able to fully comprehend this. And when we can't comprehend our own physical bodily resurrection, if if we can't figure that out, how are we ever going to comprehend the resurrection and renewal of all of creation? And and if we can't figure that out, if we don't believe in that, then we're quickly going to slide back into the same dualistic belief that many in the church in Corinth had slipped back into Believing that this this physical realm, it's only temporary. Our bodies, the earth, creation, it's only temporary because because nothing physical lasts. It's all disposable. And that changes the way we live. We, We begin to treat our bodies as though they don't matter. They're just disposable. We treat the earth is it though it doesn't matter, it's just disposable. We, we treat creation as though it doesn't matter. Like, why, why did you bother celebrating Earth Day yesterday if the Earth's just going to go away? Why worry about climate change if it's all just going to get blown up in the end anyway? And Paul responds to those questions saying, you, you foolish person, you're... You're you're trying to explain the unexplainable. You're trying to define the undefinable. And yet we do that a lot, don't we? We do that a lot with God. Which, mind you, it isn't all bad. I I think many of us, we're curious, aren't we? we? We want to know God more. We want to know more about God. We want to better understand God. And really, that's what theology is, right? Theology is just the study of the nature of God. Yet the more we learn about God, the more aware we are of how little we actually know about God. Six years of seminary taught me that. The more you learn about God, the more aware you are of how little we know about God. Because God God is too much for us. He is beyond our limited finite human mind to comprehend and so we we struggle to understand things we we struggle to understand the trinity amen one god three persons yeah no no uh and, and any attempt to illustrate fails right you remember that that video the um with uh, the two little irish guys explaining to saint patrick uh, all the heresies every every illustration of the trinity fails Every attempt at trying to explain the Trinity, you end up tongue-tied. But not just that, we, we struggle to understand God, God's intimate imminence, his, his perfect love and his constant presence, because we don't experience that with anyone else. 
We struggle to comprehend his, his infinite transcendence, that he, he is the creator of, of everything, the heavens and the earth, of, of time and space, having always existed, existing before the creation of time and space, existing outside of that. God, God exists without limits. And so while nothing is too big for God, sometimes God becomes too big for us. And so we, we try to put God in a box to be studied until every aspect can be fully understood and, and able to be explained to our satisfaction because we, we struggle to trust in what we don't understand, don't we? We struggle to believe in that which cannot be explained to our own satisfaction. And Paul says that when we do this to God, that, that's foolish. It's laughable. Because you're never going to fully understand God. You'll never be able to explain everything about God. Because, because what you're doing then is you're limiting God. He ceases to be God and you make yourself God. You're, you're stripping God of his infinite power and his, his ability to do things you can't imagine. His, his ability to do things you can't comprehend, including our own physical bodily resurrection. And we paint when we paint a picture of God without power, we paint a picture of life without hope. That's what Paul's getting at here in the beginning. And so he wants them to understand, and, and he does this with an illustration, telling a story. He, he's going to compare something they don't understand to something they do understand. And he, he's looking out into creation to the things they could touch and to see, the things they could explain to some extent and accept it as true. He, he's finding common ground just as we saw him do a couple of weeks ago. And by turning to the story of creation, he's, he's showing them who God is and, and, and what he's already done so that they would trust and believe in what God has promised to do. Showing how this story begins with creation and ends with the resurrection and restoration and renewal of creation, including our own resurrected bodies. And so he begins this illustration by illustrating the, the transformation of something that previously existed being transformed into something new. He uses an, an example of seeds germinating, of new life sprouting from a dying seed. Look down here with me. He says in verse 36, he says, what you sow, what you plant, it does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of weed or of some other kind of grain. You know what I'm going to say next? Back home in Iowa, back on the farm, right, what we would harvest in the fall, it didn't look anything like what we planted in the spring. Because life doesn't sprout up from a seed by digging it up and dusting it off. No, it, it sprouts by the seed dying. As, as the seed begins to break down, roots uh, begin to sprout down into the soil, and a, and a stem bursts forth and, and shoots out uh, above the ground. It's kind of like, remember the movie Alien? That, that creature that was, you know, po poking through the guy's chest, and then bam, right? That's what's happening to the seed. The seed's getting ripped open, the thing's coming out. It's a great picture, isn't it? 
But what you're, you, you planted this little seed, and what, you're, what you have then is this beautiful green giant corn stalk with, with an ear of corn on it. Similar to, say, the, the metamorphosis of a caterpillar transforming into a, a beautiful monarch butterfly. And what he's doing here is he's illustrating continuity in the midst of discontinuity. Continuity that, in that what it is, its being has not changed. It remains corn. It remains a monarch. But in the midst of discontinuity, right? A seed becoming a stalk. A, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. And he describes this transformation in, in, in the passive tense. A better translation would be that it is, it is brought to life, meaning it's not something that the seed does to itself, but something done to the seed, something done to the caterpillar, something initiating this transformation. And he says in verse 38, he says, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Now, mind you, he's not trying to provide a detailed scientific explanation of exactly how the dead are raised, like how God brings all the bits together and breathes life back into it. No, he's showing how such a thing is possible, what, what power is at work, who is at work, and that who is God. He is the one behind the scenes bringing life to what has died. Think of it in a similar way. It's really no different than than Moses in writing the story of creation in Genesis 1. Right? Moses wasn't providing a scientific account of what happened and when. No, he's providing a poetic account of how it happened and who made it happen. This is an important lesson in reading the Bible. The first, we need to understand why the author wrote what they wrote before we can understand what they wrote. We need to understand the why before we can understand the what, because a misunderstood intention leads to a misunderstood interpretation. But he's not only stressing the sovereign power of God behind the transformation of the body, God giving it a body and bringing it to life. He's also describing the sovereign will of God and determining the type of body as he has chosen, as he has determined, as he has willed it to be each kind its own type of body. And we see this throughout God's creation, all the inhabitants of the earth. He says in verse 39, he says, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. What we see here is that God creates different types of bodies to exist and flourish in different types of environments. So that each type can flourish where it was created to live, flourish in the way it was created to live, the where and the way. Fish, he created with gills so that they can breathe and flourish underwater. Birds, he gave wings so that they can live and flourish in the air. Animals, he gave legs so that they can flourish on land. And as humanity, he gave us minds that could flourish within creation, continuing the act of creation and caring for creation. And so we fail to flourish, though, when we go against the way God intended us to live. Fish don't live too long on land, do they? Uh, we don't last too long underwater, maybe 30 seconds. And ain't none of us lasting long in space, are we? You get your spacesuit punctured, you're done. You're done. So what he says here, he says in 
verse, he says uh, there are heavenly bodies. There are things created by God to exist and flourish in the sky above, and there are earthly bodies, things created by God to exist and flourish on the ground below and in the seas below. And he says, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory for the sun, another glory for the moon, another glory for the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Right? Each one is, is uniquely glorious and flourishing when it functions the way God determined. And so he says in verse 42, he says, so it is with the resurrection. He's like, if you've understood to some degree what I've said, you're going you're gonna to better understand what I'm about to say. Because everything I've told you about God transforming bodies, death bringing life, and God creating different types of bodies to flourish in different types of environments, all of that applies to the resurrection of your body. And and so having explained now how the dead are raised, that is, by the sovereign hand of God, he goes on to explain what type of body, what kind of body we have, describing our resurrected body. And And he does this by contrasting it with our current body. Each as God has chosen, each as God has determined and willed. And and he provides four contrasts here uh, of these two different types of bodies existing in two types of environments. And the first contrast is that our current body is perishable. It has a lifespan. It is finite. It will come to an end. It is in bondage to corruption, Paul says in Romans 8. It's on a trajectory towards death, death brought on by the presence of sin. Having infected all of creation, infecting our bodies. And so as we age, um, our cells break down. Our bodies deteriorate. It's, it's another aspect of the already not yet and that we are already in some sense dying but not yet dead. I feel that already not yet on Mondays after my long runs where I feel the arthritis eating away at my knees in a way it didn't just a couple of years ago. And I'm reminded that that's not the way it's supposed to be. But the good news is that our resurrected body, it is imperishable. It's incorruptible, never breaking down. It is infinite, never facing death, death having been defeated. The second contrast is that our current body, it's, it's sown in dishonor, in humiliation. It is, it is stained by sin, sometimes Our own sin, sometimes the sin of others, sometimes just the mere presence of sin in our broken world. And we feel the shame sometimes of that sin, of what has been done to our bodies. But again, there's hope, there's good news in that our resurrected body, it will be raised in glory, it will be restored to honor, white as snow, cleansed from the stain of sin, free of the shame, brought on by sin, a body that we feel at home in, a body that we feel comfortable in. The third contrast is that our current body is sown in weakness. We are born with disabilities, we are susceptible to disease, and we are suffering in ways that we're not meant to be. We suffer physically in our body. We suffer mentally. We suffer emotionally. And we're experiencing 
the ravaging effects that sin has had on our world. And again, I'm not saying this is due to your sin. I'm saying it's due to the presence of sin. Does that difference make sense? That could be something we get caught. It's simply due to the presence of sin. And as great as modern medicine is, we don't have the power to prevent or reverse the effects of creation's undoing. But our resurrected bodies, they will be raised in power, Paul says, free of pain and suffering. No more, no more cancer, no more even the common cold. No more diabetes, no more depression. No more having to worry about pollen count in the spring and sneezing all the time with allergies. And all God's allergic people said amen. But let, like, let's not rush past this and get to number four. Let's sit here for a second. I think this is where the physical resurrection sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? It's beyond our ability to understand April in the Midwest without constantly sneezing. It's beyond our ability to comprehend a world in which cancer has been eradicated. And I think that's especially true for someone who's living with or caring for someone who's suffering from chronic pain, someone battling cancer, someone facing dementia. The list goes on and on. And what I know you long for more than anything is for that to just all go away. And you'll latch on to anything that gives a hint of a day in which that is gone. And you have that. That's exactly what will happen in our resurrected bodies. And that leads to the fourth contrast here, and that our current body is sown as a natural body, and our resurrected body raised a spiritual body. Now, if you're paying attention last week, right about now, you might be thinking, ha, we got you. Uh, Our resurrected body is not an actual physical body you can touch. It's a spiritual body. We're like Casper the ghost after the resurrection, floating around in in a thing that looks like a body. Yeah, no. That's the best Midwest phrase, isn't it? Yeah, no. <laughs> Followed by, no, yeah. <laughs> Followed by, oh. But yeah, no, that's not what he means. The adjectives he's using here, they're not describing what the body is composed of, but what it consists of. Uh, N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, um, a book I would highly recommend. Subtitle is Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. And he, he puts things, he puts words to things where you're like, yeah, that's addressing the, my misunderstanding right there. It is worth the read. But what he says is that what Paul's doing here, he's describing not the material out of which things are made, but the power or energy that animates them. And he, and he goes on to describe this, to illustrate this uh, using boats, using ships. And so he's like, rather than contrasting a wooden ship with a steel ship, that is a a ship made of wood versus a ship made of steel, he's more contrasting a sailboat to a steamship, a, a boat powered by wind or a boat powered by steam. And so whereas our natural body is empowered by our own sinful, fallen human nature, our resurrected spiritual body, a physical body, will be empowered by the Spirit of Christ. Now I'm going to do what Paul did in the beginning. I'm going to say, so you might be thinking, um, isn't that already true? Don't we have the Spirit within us, God within us? 
when we give our lives to Christ and begin following Jesus? Yes, but not in full. We don't experience it in full. Here's why. And he's another example of the already not yet of this world living after the resurrection but before his return. And it's that those in Christ, followers of Jesus, we already possess the spirit of Christ. We do. But we are not yet fully free and rid of our sinful fallen nature, are we? We're, it, it, it's at war within us, Paul describes in, in Romans 7, that, that even when we want to do what is right, even when we want to follow the Spirit's leading, evil lies close at hand, he says, and we're prone to go our own way because while we have the power of steam, right, we have the power of the Spirit, we also have this tattered sail that occasionally catches a wind blowing in the wrong direction and drifts us off course. He says, for if there is a natural body, our current body, one that has been impacted by sin, there is also a spiritual body, one free of the effects of sin, a new type of body intended for a new type of environment. No, no longer living in the brokenness of this world in the presence of sin, but living in the presence of our Savior, in the presence of God in a world free of sin. And he says here in verse 45, he says, thus it is written, and he's referring back to Genesis 2 here. He says, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam, referring to Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. Our natural body, then the spiritual body. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. He is, he is from God. And as we, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And what he's saying here is that um, if we go back to Genesis 1, the story of creation, we see God creating humanity, creating us in his image. It says, after his likeness. And he created us in the beginning, both male and female. And Moses, he, he, he describes this. Uh, he, he paints a picture of Adam being formed from the dust of the earth and Eve being formed from his rib. But he gives us this picture of both of them standing there together, side by side, not front and back, side by side. Each created in uniquely gendered bodies, but both created in one and the same image. And together, reflecting the image of the creator within his creation. Caring for creation, continuing with creation. But we flip the page from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3, and we see how that image quickly became distorted. And the unraveling of creation began with rebellion against God, creation rebelling against its creator. Humanity no longer desiring to live in a way in which it was created to live, desiring that which God determined to be destructive and eating from the tree that we were told not to eat from. And as children and descendants of Adam, we are children of the curse. We are made in the image of God, but born in the image of the man of dust, a fractured image in the likeness of Adam with a natural, perishable body sown in dishonor and weakness. 
And like Adam, we too one day will return to the ground, to dust we shall return, as God said in Genesis 3, because what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Right? Our body is transformed into a spiritual, imperishable body, resurrected in glory and power and brought to life by the Spirit of Christ, bearing the image of the man of heaven, bearing the perfect image of Christ and in his likeness, a new type of body for a new type of environment here in the presence of God, Jesus having returned, having made all things new just as he said he would do. And so how are the dead raised? They are raised by the power of Christ upon his return. And with what kind of body? One restored to his perfect image. And here's why this matters. Here's why this gives us hope. Here's why this is theology that we put into action that impacts the way that we live. A few years ago, um, a good friend of ours began experiencing some rather extreme health challenges. And she saw doctor after doctor after doctor, and they, were, they weren't able to find what was wrong with her. Uh, some went as far as to try and convince her that she was making it up. It was all in, in her head. Because they'd never heard of anything that had such a wide variety of symptoms before. This didn't fit in any of their medical textbooks. And so she kept going. She was her own advocate, as we so often have to be. And she began meeting with specialist after specialist after specialist until she met an honest-to-God, real-life Dr. House. And this guy, do you know what he did? He listened. He listened to her story, and he believed her. And he's like, let's figure this out. And what they came to see was she wasn't suffering from one or two things. She was suffering from about 25 things. And she went through experimental treatments and procedures and medications, but the thing is nothing helped. Because every time they thought they were addressing one symptom, it actually negatively impacted these other systems and vice versa. She, she was living in constant pain because her body was already beginning to break down. And she called a couple of weeks ago. It was uh, the first day of our spring break when we were uh, up in Wisconsin to let us know that her doctors had given her three weeks to live and that she was going to begin in-home hospice care, which for her actually was a bit of relief. She saw the end in sight. And so Jill flew out that next weekend. She flew out over Palm Sunday weekend to sit with her friend, to hold her hand, to tell her stories. She told her stories about the boys. Uh, she told her stories about church. She told her stories about her little preschool kiddos that she's with every day at work. She's trying to have as normal a conversation as you can have with someone that you love and that you know you're about to say goodbye to. And then Tuesday morning, um, her in-home care provider let us know that she was no longer responsive and that she was sleeping peacefully. And Jill texted me that when I was out running in Bussy Woods, and I remember thinking, hey, God, I, I don't know if this is possible, but I'm going to ask it anyway. 
Uh, if you could like patch me through to Liz right now. I just like her to know it's okay to go. It, it, you can go now. And so when the phone rang Wednesday morning, we knew without even answering. We knew the pain and suffering was over for the first time in, in years. And we knew that she was truly resting peacefully now. I tell you this because here's why the resurrection matters. Here's why the resurrection is good news. It's in knowing that because Liz was united with Christ in a death like his, that she will certainly, most definitely be united with him in a resurrection like his, Paul says. That when Christ returns and he resurrects her spiritual body, it will be imperishable. It will be raised in glory and in power that she's never experienced Right? Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new, all of creation, including Liz's body. No more pain anymore, no more experimental procedures, no more medications, no more metal rods inserted in her neck just to hold her head up anymore. And in that moment when Christ returns and she is resurrected, she will be free of the pain. She will be free to dance again. She was a ballerina She'll be free to dance. She'll be free to smile and to laugh again, free to worship in the presence of God again. This is why the resurrection matters. Do you get it? This is our hope, a living hope, Peter says. This is, this is our inheritance, what it is that we have to look forward to, an inheritance secured for us by Christ. And this is why we as Christians rejoice even in the face of death. Make no mistake, we grieve and we mourn and we are still crying for the loss of our friend. But we do not grieve without hope, amen? We don't grieve without hope because we know how the story ends. It ends with a new type of body, our resurrected body, a body free of the effects of sin for a new type of environment, a renewed and restored creation, free of the damaging effects of sin. That is our hope. The resurrection matters. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.